Good to see you, Disciples Church. Good morning. I'm excited about what's ahead of us. If I've never met you, my name is Joshua Kirst. I'm the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church. Today is the day of our anniversary. Our church began on this date 130 years ago. 1889, this was just a big old field. I mean, literally, before it was Bakersfield, it was just a field. And uh, to the very roots of our city and beginnings and just so cool to see how God has endured us as, as a church, First Baptist Church of Bakersfield. And especially sweet is these last 10 years of reformation and transformation and new birth and just so wonderful to have you connecting with us and growing with us in this new season. I pray that uh, this will be family for you sooner than later and uh, really excited to, to preach God's word. We're passionate here at Disciples to preach through the, the books of the Bible as God has written them and for me to get out of the way of the word as a preacher and not give you my ideas but to really help you understand the word and, and what God has for us that it would do its mighty work in our lives and so with that today we begin a new sermon series the book of Jonah. Now, the book of Jonah is actually very short it's only four chapters uh, because uh, it's in a narrative format, we're really going to move through it pretty quickly. Uh, probably this series will only take us about five or six weeks. If you know uh, the, the exposition that we value doing, it often uh, take our time. Um, and just like the letter of James, which we most recently finished, uh, don't let the fact that Jonah is short, uh, just four chapters on a few pages, um, cause you to think that it doesn't pack a punch. A mighty punch is a potent and wonderful book of the Bible that God has perfectly ordained to be in our possession, to, to know his word and what he would have for us in it. Uh, Jonah, like all of scripture, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16. I want to ask you to pull your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of Jonah. If you haven't already, you'll find it towards the, towards the back of the Old Testament, uh, just after Obadiah and before Micah. So Again, it's short, so it's kind of tucked in there. Uh, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles with you here at Disciples Church. We really value working through the Word of God. It's one of my job priority to help you fall in love with and, and learn and navigate the Word of God and Having the scriptures in your hand will be a help to you in that. A few things about the book of Jonah before we begin into our exposition of the text. Um, there's been a lot of speculation over the years of the, the genre or the literary style of Jonah. Um, some have longed to, to say that it's allegory or a parable in its form. And I agree with the historic theologians that understand Jonah as historical prophetic narrative, meaning what it says happens, happened. Uh, and to help us arrive there, Jewish tradition uh, regards the narrative uh, of Jonah uh, as history. Uh, Jesus Christ himself references Jonah's testimony as rooted in historic reality, and uh, we'll read about that in just a little bit. Uh, in its scope, Jonah is only four chapters long. In most average-sized Bibles, it's only in two pages. So you've probably opened to Jonah, and it's all there right before you uh, as, as your Bible sits open. One of the reasons that Jonah is considered, uh, this is one of the reasons that Jonah is considered a minor prophet. Uh, that's a, a category given to this Old Testament book. Uh, there are 17 books in the Old Testament that are called the prophets or the prophetic books. Five of those are what we call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Uh, they're considered major prophets because they cover such a, a broad landscape and depth of time and ministry. Whereas the other 12, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are smaller in breadth and scope. So that's why we call them minor prophets. Not that they're less important, just smaller in scope. Jonah is a bit unusual in the prophetic books because it, in it, it never addresses Israel. 
uh, directly, but rather gives an account about the prophet himself and God's work through that prophet, prophet of Jonah. Uh, it's also significant that Jonah, along with Nahum, uh, are the few that God sends to a nation other than Israel, as we're going to see in this showing God's love for uh, his people that are among every tribe, tongue, and nation. Um, there are two main sections in this book, or two acts, you could say, Act 1 and Act 2. Uh, they're very easily discernible. Act 1 is chapter 1 and 2, and Act 2 is chapter 3 and 4. Uh, and one of the things that helps us understand that is both begin with the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah 1.1, 1, 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah 3.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Each of these two big sections are divided into subsections. In the first, we see the commission of the Lord to Jonah, and then it speaks of Jonah's response. The second uh, uh, subsection in part one reveals the consequences to Jonah's actions. Both of the second subsections reveal God's saving intervention. Uh, the first we see in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, when God saves Jonah in the sea. And then second in Jonah 3.10, when God saves the wicked Ninevites. In both of these, we also see Jonah's response to God's saving intervention. Uh, we see when God brings salvation to Jonah, or saves him in his unique circumstance, he is filled with great gratitude, but when there is a saving of Jonah's enemy in the second act, Jonah is really bitter. Uh, in this overview, we can kind of quickly see that there's a big roller coaster uh, that we go through in this short narrative, uh, ups and downs, just as life can be that way for us, church. Uh, we all experience real-life victories and defeats, uh, times where we do what is right and God-honoring, and times where we give in to sin and dishonor God in His holy name. Despite our unfaithfulness and lack of consistency, Scripture is clear to point out that God is faithful and absolutely steadfast. Amen? This brings me to another great gift of the book of Jonah, that of what it is to us. Within it, we have concrete examples of sin and grace, uh, of rebellion and repentance. Uh, too often, we have a short-sighted view uh, or even lack of understanding of what sin is and what grace is. And as a result, therefore, we have a, a short-sighted view of the gospel and what Christ accomplishes for us on our behalf. Um, we are desperate for a right view of sin and grace to have a full appreciation of the gospel and living it out for the glory of our Lord. One of the main reasons why I love this book is because of how much we, I think, can relate to Jonah uh, in his struggles, in his flesh, uh, and in his heartfelt repentance and devotion to God. Um, like many of us, Jonah has a very religious upbringing uh, that in many ways is desperate for gospel renewal. And for many of us, that's kind of our story too. We can relate to that with Jonah. Um, finally, Jonah, like Jonah, we are desperate for the steadfastness of God and his sovereign hand in all things. And I just ask you this morning as we climb in, do you have a full and right view of just how in control of all things God is? is church we need to have a right view that god is sovereign truly over all things um, not surprised not not held captive uh, not on an even playing field with anyone uh, he is hallowed high and above in this short narrative of jonah we're going to see the sovereign power of god over things like the weather the sea uh, the roll of the dice, uh, animals, plants, and even salvation itself. Sovereign over all these things. Our God is truly awesome. Amen? Uh, I can't wait for us to experience this and study these things together as we study. Uh, finally, one of the great gifts that Jonah is to us is to show uh, us God's mission and compassion for a people that he would have from every tribe, 
tongue, and nation. The story of Jonah reveals that God's salvation is not restricted just to the Jews, uh, but is also for the Gentiles. The Gentiles are anyone who are not Jewish, including many of us. And even among those, that God will save a people, even among those who are most wicked and detestable, those whom we would consider absolute enemies, uh, often God in his providence has even them among his elect, whom he graciously saves and transforms for his purposes and glory. Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Additionally, God's high call to take his love and his gospel to the ends of the earth, despite great risk and even great peril to us, is a priority not only given to Jonah, but to us, the church, today. And so in this, as we journey through this text, we're going to get to answer and do business with questions like, what are God, are our God-given obligations as the people of God to a lost world? How deep does our compassion run for the lost in our community? Is the disposition of our congregation towards the lost, does it reflect a heart of God or more maybe the heart of Jonah? Church, I am so excited to go on this journey with you uh, and to see what God has in store for us. Uh, there was uh, an exciting energy in the departure of first hour, um, and uh, I'm really excited to, to be here with you today to preach God's word. And as we do that, we're desperate for him. So can you join me as we go to prayer? Father, we thank you for this time, uh, this space to study your word, to seek your will for us to understand you better and to know you and to grow in righteousness and obedience that we would serve you all of our days. That for those who you've brought to this place today or are listening maybe later to the podcast, Lord, those who are still dead in sin and desperate for the salvation of Christ alone, that they would repent and believe and be saved. For those who are guilty of proclaiming Jesus as Lord, but then walking in disobedience, that we would repent, we confess this as sin, and turn and, and honor you with our days from this point forward. Uh, Father, do your mighty work in and through us as we study the holy word of God, as we seek your face, uh, and to glorify you in all things. We, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With that introduction to our series behind us, Let's look to the text. Today I want to preach Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're, we're going to go deep into this text today. Uh, look with me at the section we'll be in today, and then we'll, we'll delve in. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 1 begins with, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Right away we are introduced to Jonah and see that Jonah is a prophet of God. We understand this by the phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the fact that Jonah is a prophet of God is solidified elsewhere in Scripture. We see in 2 Kings 14, a passage worth taking note of, verse 25, to get right to the point, says, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amity, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. 2 Kings 14 helps us put together some of the facts about Jonah's life that we don't necessarily get in the opening words of, of Jonah chapter 1. So before we move on, let's, let's capture what the Lord gives us here as Scripture interprets Scripture. Jonah is referred to here in 2 Kings 14 as God's servant. 
We need to see this as a special call of God on those whom he would call to set apart for his unique service and purposes. Uh, In a similar vein, God speaks through Amos about his servants, the prophets. We see that in Amos 3.7. Jonah belonged to a privileged group of men chosen by God who heard his unmistakable voice telling them what they should say about him or, or what he was about to perform or what his word was for the people, for his creation. What an amazing call on their lives, the prophets, to get to be the voice of God, to speak the truths of God, the works of God. The Second Kings passage also illuminates that the words Jonah spoke for the Lord are fulfilled, and that's key because the chief test of a true prophet is that they spoke the truth. They spoke the actual word of God, which means that what he said would happen actually happens. And those who were claiming to be prophets but were false prophets and proved that they were not speaking the word of the Lord were killed. They were stoned to death. The fact that Jonah's living, the fact that we have testimony that he was speaking the the word of the Lord faithfully is a good endorsement that he is truly a prophet of God. Um, One of the places we read about his confirmation as a true prophet of God is extra special. We read about it in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 41, the testimony of Jesus our Lord himself. That passage says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This very wonderful testimony of the Lord about Jonah is is a beautiful confirmation of his life, his work, uh, and the Lord's purpose for him in these things. We will surely return back to this testimony of Christ in our series as we move through it. But back to 2 Kings 14. We also see that in this verse, not not only is Jonah confirmed as a true prophet of God, but that he's from Gath-Hefer. Notice with me uh, that it's a town, Gath-Hefer is a town um, that is a part of Galilee, just three miles northeast of, Zat- of Nazareth. Uh, and consider with me again another prominent figure that would come out of Galilee and Nazareth later. right? Jesus himself, the Messiah. And so in this, we are helped to see how Jonah himself fulfills an important part of the Old Testament narrative and God's ultimate purpose and providence. That Jonah is a type a type that we see in the Old Testament that points to and is fulfilled in the anti-type, Jesus Christ himself. We see a few short examples. Again, we'll look at some of these more later as we go. Uh, As Jesus testified, he was three days in the fish's belly, delivered from it. Christ, the Messiah, too, was three days, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in the grave and raised uh, from, from death and Uh, our predecessor uh, unto life. Uh, Jonah declared the grace and mercy of God to repenting sinners, Christ the same. Uh, He called uniquely not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. This is um, something that was really unheard of among the Jewish people. And and as we see in their response in the New Testament, uh, in that Jesus making clear that he brings salvation, redemption for the Gentiles as well. It will be a joy to see the type and anti-type applications as we work through Jonah together. They're important for our understanding of God's work throughout Scripture. Uh, And I say this because the gospel of our Lord is rich in these Old Testament books. um, To see our our sin rightly and our need for a Savior and to have uh, God's word point to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Uh, all throughout scripture 
Before we move on, one more note about the fact that Jonah is a true prophet of God, and it's really extra special, uh, because this is a big deal. I mean, to be called of God, to be the voice of God to the people um, is huge. I mean, it's, it's part of the unique kind of legacy that Jonah comes out of. While his father is named, we know almost nothing of his father. But again, in that Second Kings passage, we have uh, further insight that he's called the son of the prophets. And so that phrase is used to describe a special group of men chosen to do this prophetic work of God. We do not know if he was directly an understudy, but we know in the timeline that he uh, came shortly after the, the, some of the most famous prophets, that of Elijah and Elisha. Um, and so coming on the heels of their prophetic ministry means that if he was not directly impacted by them, indirectly as he ran with their understudies and disciples, that this is huge. The fact that Jonah is doing this work uh, was among this crowd of prophets still living uh, affirmation that he is truly speaking the words of God means that Jonah was important in his day. Um, and being used by God in a major in a major way, and and what that does for for any of us is set up in our flesh a temptation to feel like we are important, um, that we um, in the horizontal have have an identity and a value, and we we kind of are tempted to lay our stake in that, and and that's surely something that Jonah is going to have to work through um, in in what's to come. Um, and something important for us to work through. And what do we lay our stake in, our value, our identity, and the things outside of God, even the things that are called to us to be of God, uh, that I would not lay any of my identity or my importance in his call currently for me to be a preacher of the word of God or a pastor, but that my identity would be firmly sat in the fact that I'm a son of God, I'm adopted by Christ, by nothing that I've done or continue to do, that all of my joy and my value and my identity is in Christ alone. And so we, we lean into him and these truths, and we want to be aware of these realities as we study his word. Um, look with me at verse 2 as we move into God's command upon him. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. The command of the Lord for Jonah was that he arise from the place where he was, leave the business he was doing, prepare for the long journey to the place mentioned, and then do what God is asking him to do there. What I want us to not miss here is the simple and yet essential obedience required of the commands of the Lord. When God tells his created, when the creator instructs the created and tells us what to do, we should do it. Because he is God and we are not. Because he is the creator and we are his creation. Because he is the authority above all authority. And who are we to tell him? what we're going to do instead. Who are we that we would do anything but what he asked us to do with swift, joyful obedience? But the story of mankind and our sin is just the opposite. We are prone constantly to think of a better way, to think of what we think is the right thing to do. Whether it be Adam and Eve exchanging paradise and perfect communion with God for the one thing God told them not to partake in. One thing. One tree. Or mankind in general exchanging the truth about God for a lie and choosing to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, as Paul clearly lines out in Romans chapter 1. Scripture is clear that all of mankind that belongs to God, for He created us, and is the one who is sustaining us in this very moment. Think about how desperate you are for God. None of your parts, none of your organisms, none of your cells work correctly unless he who is sustaining all things 
is continuing you. He doesn't wind up creation, set it in motion, and then go take a nap. The word says that he is active, present, sustaining every part of our days. Think of the presence of God. Think of who am I to to challenge, to second guess the author of all of these things. To disobey God is to be in sin. To obey God is to honor him and to walk by faith. Abraham was a man of faith. James chapter 2, verse 23, we studied this last year. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. He was a man of faith. That faith was challenged. It was challenged in a way that we see few people challenged in all of Scripture. For God went to him. As we studied last week on Resurrection Sunday, told him to take that very special son, his only son, whom he loved, through whom he was promised a lineage, a heritage of generations that would be innumerable. He'd waited a lifetime for that boy. And Isaac was finally his. And God says, take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice him. And what does Abraham do? He packs his bags. And he gets his boy. And he heads up the mountain. And he raises the tool of his demise over his body. And in his faith, he's going to do what God told him to do. He's going to give up the most cherished thing in his life. Next to the Lord. And there it lies. So sometimes we think God is first. God is most important. And yet when challenged to walk by faith, when challenged to sacrifice the other things that we hold so dear, do we prove that God is really not first? That I would actually turn to him and say, no God, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to give up the thing that I cherish so much. Praise God that not only did God provide an answer, a substitute, for that sacrifice that day, but that he provided our answer, a substitute. His one and only son was slain on our behalf so that we could be redeemed and forgiven. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free. Amen? Church, who are we? In Christ, we belong to God. Think about that. We belong to him. And so if God is telling you to do something, we should do it. Not because it makes sense to us. Not because you're open to the idea or you like it. But simply because it is God who's telling you what to do. Because you belong to him, you do what he tells you to do. For he is my master, and I am, it is my joy to be his servant, to be his, to belong to the Lord. Church, we who are in Christ, we belong to God in a special way. Paul says it in Romans 1 6 that the very central heart of Christianity is to belong to Jesus. Think about that. When you think of being a Christian, Do you first think of belonging to God? Do you belong to him for his glory? Or are you guilty of first thinking of the fact that he has saved you from hell and you have this ticket to not suffer eternally and it's it's kind of a self-centering view? Or no, do you think about the fact that, that you have been saved to get to serve him, to get to honor him as Lord of your life? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. So when the Lord says, get up and do this, or don't do that, we who belong to him should do it. This is obeying the Lord. And so when God says to Jonah, go, arise, go to Nineveh, he should do it. Church, do you realize that God has given us a similar command? Consider with me, 
his great commission for us, the church, the redeemed. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He has told his redeemed ones to get up and go and to make disciples, to be about the business of disciple-making and testifying of his gospel. As you and I consider the obedience of Jonah to get up and go and do the work that he's been called to do, where, where are we at with doing what God has called us to do? Are we, are we about to be guilty of having judgment for Jonah's disobedience and yet we sit here making our faith, our Christianity, our days in the Lord really about us? Really about being more of a consumer and keeping it really about me? No, he's called us to be disciples so that we can make disciples. He's called us to a work, church. He's called us to a privileged testimony that his name would be known, praised among the nations, that his people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to know that gospel. We must be a part of that. We have brothers and sisters who are actively right now in foreign countries, places where if the country knew what they were there to do, they would be captured, they would be killed, they would be martyred. And they've taken their families, their little ones, to these foreign lands to spend the next 10, 20, 30 years of their lives to learn a language, to come to know a foreign people group, that they might testify the gospel, and that God's elect among these nations would be saved to fulfill his commands. We're a part of that. We better be. And maybe not all of us go, but we better be part of disciple-making here so that those that he would rise up and go among our own city, among our own country, and among the nations would be discipled, would come to know him. This is what he's called us to do, church. Are you obeying God's commission for you as a blood-bought Christian? How seriously do you take his command, the command of God on your life, to direct and prioritize your days? For some of you, I praise God, your, your very joining our church as of late is a step in this direction to be among a people of God who are faithful to preach the word and faithful to long to obey it, faithful to make disciples and, and to really journey in that effort and then to make disciples of those he puts around us. And so I pray you continue to lean in, discover what this is. Church, are we here for his purposes and for his will? We are privileged ambassadors and witnesses of his gospel. We are to be trained and then to multiply. Are you obeying the commands of God revealed to you in his holy word? As you encounter things that are hard, things that are overwhelming, things that maybe in your flesh you don't even agree with, do you belong to him? Therefore, are you obedient to God and his word? Even the really hard stuff, Stuff that may not make sense or things that we might just genuinely not like. But we do it. Why? Because we love God. Because we belong to him. Because it's our joy to honor and obey him. Amen? Look with me at this part of verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. He's saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Church, you need to see this is no small thing. Nineveh was a metropolis of the Assyrian Empire, a massive ancient city. Said here, proclaimed by God to be a great city, this is no understatement. Jonah 3.3 tells us, uh, by Jonah's declaration that it takes him three days to travel from one side of the city to the other. Consider how far you could get in three days of walking. That's a big city. Really big. So, some cool insights that history helps us to understand the city of Nineveh. Uh, it's located roughly 550 miles from where Jonah presides, so that's a, a, a trip, a sizable trip. It'd be like going from here to the Grand Canyon. Um, in the capital, it was the capital of Assyria and truly one of the great cities of the ancient world. Uh, huge strongholds. The, th- the city was 30 miles long, 10 miles wide. 
It had amazing fortified walls on its perimeter, five walls, three moats or canals surrounding the city, 100-foot-high walls, wide enough for four chariots to drive side by side on top of the wall. It had 15 gates, 140 myriad of men. It was said to have taken eight years to build it. A myriad is 10,000 men, 140 myriads. Think about how many that is. When God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, this is not a small journey, nor is its destination a casual thing. Especially when we consider the wickedness that Nineveh was known for. God himself says here in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. To cry out against Nineveh meant to prophesy against it, to speak against it, to call it to repentance, this city, these people. It meant to to raise a voice and cry aloud, walking through the streets so the inhabitants of this huge city would respond to the word of the Lord with repentance. The wickedness of Nineveh was so dark and so horrific Consider even God's words here. Their evil has come up before me. Now, let's make sure we're seeing that clearly. We must understand that God sees and knows all things outside of time. Therefore, he has not given insight to something that he didn't already perfectly and completely have before time. So what does he mean by their evil has come up before me? It is said this way to bring emphasis to the abundance of their wickedness. Like it's, it's bubbling over. It's so wicked. It's rising up. It's, it's like crying out to God. That's how wicked it is. It's crying out for vengeance. For immediate vengeance. And the inhabitants are, are ripe for destruction. Their evil is so open-handed and so brazen and so bold these things are in the sight of the lord and they're staunchly against him his holiness the book um, of nahum gives us insight into nineveh briefly in chapter 1 verse 9 it says that nineveh was evil plots were made against god and chapter 2, verse 12, exploitation of the, of the helpless we see, testimony of in Nahum 2, 12 through 13, there's cruelty and war. Uh, Nahum chapter 3, verse 4, idolatry, prostitution, witchcraft. Just to give you a taste from other scriptures, history also tells us that the Assyrians, who, who were the residents of Nineveh, were some of the most violent and most cruel among the inhabitants of the earth. I mean, just to name a few, and in later sermons we'll get into more of the depth of their evil. They would have their captives kneel before them, and they would, in large numbers, just cut off all their heads. Because they got paid for the amount of heads they brought back. They would pile up mounds of bodies and heads and hands as evidence of their superiority over other nations create fear dominance wicked evil mankind just brutally slain and put on display consider with me Jonah's response to God's command to go to this place and speak against it Because there's clarity here that's really, really important for us. Look at verse 3 with me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So Jonah got up, but not to obey God. God said, arise. He, He arose, but to disobey God. To do what he thought was right in his own eyes. 
his own thoughts, his own life. He rose up not to go to Nineveh, but to go to Tarshish, which is the other direction. He's headed to the Mediterranean Sea, which is west. Nineveh was to the east. In this, we see the, the depth of our deception of our sin. Jonah is so caught up in his sin, he's attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord. This is ludicrous. Consider with me how ludicrous it is. I mean, even Adam and Eve give us an example of this. In their sin, what do they do? They hide in the garden. Like you can hide from God. Church, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. There is no running from His presence. There is no hiding from Him. The darkest most obscure hiding place that you can try to put things you don't want to be seen is not hidden from God. The layers and compartments and rooms and shadow games you play in your own mind with your sin to try to tuck evil things, embarrassing things, dark things away is not out of the full and complete sight of the Holy God. He sees it better than you even see it. He knows you at that level, and yet for you who are in Christ, He forgives you by the blood of His Son. Oh, praise Him for His gospel and His saving grace. Jonah's sin is so self-serving it is so bold that it causes him to think that he could flee from God's presence. Church, we must see that God is everywhere. There is no fleeing from him. Psalm 139, 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. We must see clearly this morning that Jonah's running is disobedience. It is sin. Consider with me the opening phrase of verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a phrase we read in Holy Scripture over a hundred times. It is a clear marker of the prophet hearing from God in order to communicate the will of God. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, the prophets often describe the sharpness of such an encounter when they heard the word of the Lord. It was a sword in their spirits, a burden on their shoulders, a hammer breaking their rocky hearts, a fire raging within them. It could not be halted, and it forced itself on them unbidden. It, it gripped their minds and touched their consciences. It impelled their emotions they could not escape the certain assurance that the voice of God was sounding in their hearts and must now sound to others through their lips. While the specific work of God to speak His word to the prophets and then in the New Testament to the apostles, while it has ceased and concluded rightly and fully, Because God has finished his written word, the canon is complete. We should feel the same way that the prophets did in hearing the word of the Lord when we delve into and study the word of God. Church, this is God's word for us. Let it be to us the way the author of Hebrews describes the Word of God. In Hebrews 4, 12-13, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him 
to whom we must give account. Oh, how I pray the word of God does its mighty work in your life and in your soul. That no, no other words, no other insights, no other counsel would hold the power and the influence on your life mightier than the word of God. What a blessing it is to have his written word. Let us not be guilty among other modern people claiming or clinging to, to say that we've heard from God something authoritative. When, when his word is complete, his word is declared as sufficient and all we need for life and godliness. Let us be people of the word, students, faithful to it, understanding it rightly and obeying what God has commanded us and called us to. We must clearly see this morning that Jonah's running in rebellion is disobedience to God. It is sin. In the Word of Truth Catechism that we're joyful to study here at Disciples Church, question 33, ask and answers. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Sin is any disobedience in heart or deed to God's perfect law and commands. James 4.17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. God's word gives us this clarity that we need. Sin is the result of not doing something God's word teaches us what we should do. It's the sin of omission when we fail to do what God requires of us. Sin is disobeying God. We can disobey him in deed and in heart, as the catechism answer gives us. Sin is disobedience indeed. That means doing or saying what God forbids. Or not doing or saying what God commands. Sin is disobedience in heart. That, that means that there's even sin in the state of our mind or the emotion or the motivation or the desires behind what we do or don't do. I titled today's sermon, Rebellion. Rebellion equals the, the act of resisting authority. Rebellion is disobedience. This is what Jonah has done. He has sinned. He has rebelled against God's clear word for him, command for him. Church, God deserves our, our obedience, our faith, our trust in him, our devotion to him. It is sin to not obey him. Please flee from any part of your flesh that wants to outthink God, to think that you have a better way, uh, that you've got some kind of insight or angle on what you should do or not do. No, his word is clear. That you would lean in to the people of God, the shepherds he's put around you, to understand the word rightly and apply it. Not be guilty of packaging it or making it our own. Not be guilty of keeping certain things off the table when all of our lives are his. Disobedience and sin is great consequence in our life. We looked at it last week at Resurrection Sunday. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I, I earn, I deserve spiritual death, eternal death because of sin. That's the great and high price of my disobedience. But there is good news in Christ alone, Jesus alone. The rest of the verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Romans 6.23, this is the place where everyone must start. There is no obedience apart from Christ. Everything you do is sin. You must be saved. Are you guilty because you're still in your sin? Are you still the Lord of your own life? Or are you saved because you have trusted your life to Jesus? You belong to him. You're not the captain of your own ship anymore. You're not doing it your own way. You're doing it his way. Has Jesus paid for your sin on your behalf? Have you truly trusted your life to him? I pray that if you're here, you're listening, you're still in your sin, you're still captain of your own ship, I pray that you would die to yourself and trust your life to him fully, completely. You belong to him. 
Why? Because as we said earlier, you've been bought with a high price. And now everything he has for you is what you long for, not your own thing. If you're still into your own thing, if you're still doing it your own way, let that be a high concern that you are still Lord of your own life. And therefore, whatever you've hung your hat on in religion is insufficient. Because there's great proof that you have not truly trusted your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord. There is a, there, there is a conviction when we're in Christ. There, there is a, an undone that, that, that when, when we're in sin, we're convicted. The Holy Spirit does His work to convict and to bring us to confession and repentance. We don't keep doing sin. We don't keep practicing sin. We, we might get caught up in it, but when we see that, we turn. We, we honor God. We belong to Him. Some of you who are saved by God's grace and place your faith in Jesus... To you this morning, I need to echo the words of Jesus himself. And I pray they do a mighty work in you to bring real conviction. When Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Are you guilty of calling him Lord and then living your days as if you're Lord? Hear his words. Why do you call me Lord, but not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. How I pray we see that any way that we are disobeying the Lord currently, that today would be the last day, that you would confess it as sin, and you'd begin a journey of repenting from it, which means turning from it, which means putting it away, which means putting it behind you, which means your path going forward honors God. That's what's important. Less about what you did yesterday, more about what you'll do later today and tomorrow. Are you going to honor him with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and repentance from sin? There are many underlying reasons why we disobey God in our sin. Let's consider Jonah's, because it's not what we first think it is. See, what could have Jonah's reason been? He was so faithful. He was doing the work of God. Why would he so blatantly disobey God's clear command and go the other direction? And the first thought is, because that city sounds really scary. Like these people are crazy on a whole other level. Yeah, I'm not going there. Right? I mean, that, that, that's a good, right first assumption. And... and in case you're kind of feeling like, wow, man, he should, God's speaking that clear. He should have just done it. Well, let me just bring a little context. I mean, this is a big deal, what, what God's calling him to do. It'd be like you and I going into the wolf's lair at the height of Nazi Germany and walking up to Hitler and saying, God sent me here to tell you to repent of your sin and to turn from it. Yeah, yeah, you live in that day. I mean, the, 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 right? I mean, th- this is what he's just got called to go do. To go to these people, these wicked, evil people, and say, repent and turn and honor God. But what's so interesting, as we read later in chapter 4, this is not why he disobeyed God. It wasn't out of fear. He didn't run from what God was telling him to go preach to Nineveh for repentance. He ran because he was worried that God would actually do it that they would actually repent. See, the prophets, they stood before opposing nations to the threat of their demise all the time. That's what they did. Saying the hard and convicting words of God for their demise, for their victory. Jonah, as an ongoing prophet, would have done this all the time. That was not scary for him. Prophets had a front row seat to see the mighty work of God, to see his will fulfilled time and time again. If it was God's will to defeat and destroy that people, they would be defeated and destroyed. The prophets had a front row seat to see if God wanted repentance and restoration for those people, they would repent and be restored. That is why Jonah ran. He later reveals in chapter 4, he was worried that, they, that this great enemy of his and of his people would repent. See, Jonah knew that God was gracious and merciful. 
And upon their repentance, God would not inflict the punishment they deserved in their sin. Let's peek. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, this is after they testified and Nineveh repented. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's sin, his reason to flee is motivated by patriotic duty to his people, a religious identity. He's more worried about his great enemy Nineveh repenting and how that would affect his people or his own feelings towards Nineveh, really disliking their enemy. In Jonah's sin, we see that he kind of represents an entire nation of Israel that really has become confused with being the elect of God and is now starting to act like the elite of God. We can become guilty of this too. Whereby we get comfortable among the redeemed of God, then we start to look down on those who are still dead in their sin. We start to feel like we're better than them or more important than them. And this can lead us to a a sinful unplugging of a testimony to a lost people, of calling them to repentance and belief, of even serving them and loving them as we're called in Scripture. Not compromising truth for love, but walking in truth and love. Testifying the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. We see Christians get caught up in the in this, oh, I don't want those kind of people to be around us, to sit next to me on the pew or to be around my kids. We, we must see this is sin. To not lay down our lives for those God intends to save and set free. To somehow get into some kind of Christian bubble and recognize that that our, our days here on earth are to be discipled so we can make disciples and have a testimony to a lost and broken world. Church, our election needs to never become in us a feeling of elitism whereby we remove ourselves from the wicked world. No, while God said clearly and commands us to not be of the world, something we should obey, He also makes it clear that we are to be in it. We are not to live like the world, for he has separated us, but we are to go into it and live lives where the Great Commission is fulfilled, where the testimony of the gospel is proclaimed, where the, the, the transformation of the gospel in our lives is seen. In a clouded state of sinful rebellion against God's will, Jonah chooses resignation over obedience. And even in that, see what sin causes us to do. So much of his identity was caught up in being a prophet. You understand, when he runs, he's not just running from a single request and then somehow he's back to it a few weeks later. No, no, he's resigning from his post in this action. Everything that he had come to love and know about and hang his hat on was being put away. See the depth of our sin. See what we are willing to throw away out of pride and arrogance. See how destructive it is. Blindness of getting caught up in our sin. Jonah's sinful rebellion causes him to not slow and pray and seek counsel, but to throw off accountability and to serve his flesh and to do what he wants to do. To do what he thinks is right, justified in his own mind. Look with me. The last part of verse 3. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Oh, I want you to lean in. I want you to see this this morning. Hear this clearly. There will always be a ship going somewhere. What do I mean by that? Did God, in his providence, open the door for Jonah to be able to to sail to Tarshish? He did. In his divine providence. Could God have stopped that ship or not allowed him to leave? He could have. So God decreed that that would be where he would go. But pay attention. 
Does that mean that Jonah was being obedient to get on that ship and go the opposite direction? No. Why? Jonah was blatantly sinning by getting on that boat and going the opposite direction. He was disobeying what God commanded him to do. The will of God's command, church, is what we are responsible to, what he tells us to do. What he decrees will happen is up to him. So we don't go back and read something like this and go, well, see, God made a way, there's an open door, and somehow justify or look back on past sin and say, well, this, turned, this sin turned into this, so therefore that must have been good. No, that's still sin. That was still me being disobedient. God had a decree, had a way to work in and through that, that was above my pay grade. But what I'm responsible for is the command, not the decree. The decree is up to him. The will of God's command was that he go to Nineveh and preach. And so, capture this. Just because there's an open door doesn't mean it's God's will for you. Just because there was room on the boat, he could play that game and go, oh, well, this man, this must be what I should do then. There's a seat open there. I hear Christians so often justify their next move despite what God's word says, claiming the door's open, so this must be God's will. Understand, there will always be a ship ready to go somewhere. That doesn't mean it's God's will for you. Don't miss this today. The ready way is not always the right way. We need to slow down and pray. We need to get into God's holy word. We need to invite godly counsel to help us test that our selfish incentives and desires are not swaying us to see an open door and go, oh yeah, this must be it. I got to jump. Ladies, you're feeling lonely. You, you want a man to comfort you and provide for you. Any guy can jump in and fill that role. It doesn't mean that's what God has for you for that guy. Guys, you have some fantasizing in your mind going on. There's always going to be some woman to put that on. Or some image to go seek out and play that out. It doesn't mean that's God's will for you. We need to put those things off. We need to seek the Lord in His will. You craving money? There's always going to be a way to sell out, make a quick buck, do something illegal. That doesn't mean that's God's will for you. It doesn't mean these, are, these doors are the obedient, God-honoring thing we should do. So I, I charge each of us with this today. How are you specifically and uniquely good at running away from the Lord? Justifying your actions apart from godly counsel and God's word just because the door was opened. And so you jumped. There will always be a ship waiting for you at the dock, calling for you to step on board and run away. I pray you see the error in this kind of reasoning apart from God's word and apart from godly accountability. We must be a people of the word. We must be people who are running with and accountable to God's community and God's people. Our sinful justification and rebellion is too strong to come up with our own path. In closing, I just want you to make it personal this morning. What is your boat to Tarshish? right now in your life? What are you justifying as the right way? Not because God has made it clear in his word or affirmed it through godly counsel, but simply because it's the thing you want to do. How can you swiftly and truly repent of this and turn from it? Maybe it's a practice in your household. Maybe it's a way you're spending money. Maybe it's a habit in your life. Jonah jumps on board, pays the fare, and he's on his way. What we're going to see next week is the response of God to Jonah's sinful disobedience. It's one of my favorite parts of this narrative. I hope you join us as we need a right understanding and insight into God's response. And for 20-year pastoral career, how we understand how God responds to Jonah in this next part of the passage has been game-changing for me and for those that I've been able to walk with. I pray you'll join us and see how sweet it is. Let me pray for us, and we respond in song and go. Father, I thank you for this day that you have made. I thank you for the provisions of this hour to study your word and a little lengthier sermon this morning that has all the introduction. You've given us an endurance through that. I thank you for that, setting the table for us to be good students of your word and and, and just stirring in us a hunger for your word, God. 
to know it and to obey it, to divide it rightly, to see these things as you have laid them out before us. Lord, you're a good God, worthy to be praised, worthy to be obeyed. Help us to see your word clearly as we study it. Help us to honor you with our days and our actions, to walk in community, not individually. Lord, move in us mightily as a result of this time. And as we join with the saints for many years before us in singing this great doxology, this this turning point in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, that we would just praise you and honor you, prepare for this day that you've prepared for us, this week ahead, the ministry you have before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.